0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. This Winfrey. Oprah. Hi there. How are you? Um... It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 5th. Today, two back-to-back mass shootings and how they've intensified a debate about white supremacy and gun policy. Plus, the hottest month in recorded history.
1: Active shooter call went out this morning to 911 at 1039 a.m.
0: Who are you? What do you do?
2: My name is Mark Berman. I'm a national reporter covering law enforcement and criminal justice.
0: And tell me, what happened over the weekend?
2: Over the weekend, there were two fatal mass shootings in America, just a matter of hours apart. The first was on Saturday morning in El Paso, Texas, at a Walmart near the border between Texas and Mexico.
1: The situation, needless to say, is a horrific one. Crime scene is being assisted by the FBI. Various law enforcement agencies respond to this scene. The Sheriff's Department, DPS... Border Patrol, everyone that carries a badge in this town pretty much showed up to that particular scene.
3: The
2: second, about 13 hours later, was outside of a strip of bars and nightclubs in Dayton, Ohio.
0: To, so, you know, be awakened in the middle of the night to a, um, a mass shooting and the 250th shooting in our country this year happening in Dayton. Um, what, what really goes through my mind is, one seems completely preventable, and um, you know, I just want, I just question, when is enough enough?
2: Together, there are at least 31 people killed and dozens more injured, although police warn and investigators warn some of these people are still hospitalized, and we don't know if the toll will increase.
0: I think that we all feel like we see these mass shootings way too often. You cover so many of them, and it's gotten to a point where they almost feel routine. But I think that for a lot of people, seeing two really terrible events happen— back-to-back in less than 24 hours was just really shocking.
2: I think that's true. I think it's horrible to say this, but people do seem to have gotten numb to it. People do seem to have gotten used to it. Um, I've been covering these for for many years now, and it used to be that a, a mass shooting of a certain scale would be the story in the country for days, maybe even beyond a week. Nowadays, sometimes these things will happen and not be the dominant story on cable news or across front pages within a day or two. It's 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 really quite quite shocking.
0: So with the shooting in Dayton, I think that, that investigators are still trying to figure out what was motivating the shooter, but you've been reporting more on what happened in El Paso and about the motivations of the alleged shooter there. What do investigators know so far?
2: In El Paso, investigators quickly took somebody into custody. They say it was very soon after the attack that he essentially surrendered to police when they confronted him. Police say he's been talking. They say he's been cooperative. They have not gone into any detail about what he has said, but they have said he is answering all of their questions and answering them openly. Um, Investigators are focusing a lot on a manifesto that was posted online shortly before the shooting. The manifesto was posted to the site 8chan, and it's filled with anti-immigrant rhetoric, racial rhetoric, uh, a lot of just rants about different things and different topics. He praises the the alleged shooter who opened fire at the mosques in New Zealand earlier this year. Um, and what investigators are not sure, they say they believe that the suspect they have in custody wrote the manifesto, but they're still making sure to verify that.
0: And if it is, in fact, his manifesto, then the belief is that he was likely actively targeting Mexicans or Mexican-Americans when he was... Doing the shooting. Right.
2: Investigators have not said yet for sure whether they believe he was targeting people of a certain background. However, they do say that looking at what they've seen so far, looking at the manifesto, looking at the place he targeted, it was a, a very well-known Walmart on the border where people come from across the border from both sides to do shopping before school. I mean, you think about this, it was early August at a Walmart superstore. People were doing their back-to-school shopping. There were kids, there were families from both sides of the border. Uh, the Mexican government has said that— uh, almost half of the victims were Mexican nationals or Mexican citizens, investigators say they're looking at this as a hate crime. They're looking at this as a domestic terror attack, in part because the domestic terrorism statute says that it is an event designed to intimidate or coerce the civilian population. And the U.S. attorney, the federal prosecutor out there, says that this would seem to meet that criteria.
4: We are conducting a methodical investigation with our partners, a careful investigation, but with a view towards bringing federal hate crimes charges under 18 U.S.C. 249 and federal firearms charges which carry a penalty of death. We are also treating this as a domestic terrorist case. It appears to be designed to intimidate a civilian population, to say the least. We are treating it as a domestic terrorism case, and we're going to do what we do to terrorists in this country, which is deliver swift and certain justice.
0: And prosecutors in the past have gotten a lot of flack for the fact that they have been somewhat reticent to label these kinds of events as a form of terrorism, but that it seems that in this case, and at this point, the prosecutors are getting more comfortable putting that label on these things, that if you're trying to intimidate a population, you you are a terrorist.
2: And it's also, I've been asked by a few people now, what makes it significant, that they are they would pursue federal hate crime structures. What makes it significant that they're calling it a domestic terror attack? In some cases, some of this is simply the U.S. government putting its weight behind this, putting its thumb on the scale. The federal government has jurisdiction in a lot of criminal cases it does not pursue. It has the ability to pursue charges. A lot of times it does not. In this case, again, they have not filed these hate crime charges yet. They just say they're strongly considering them. But they have said they believe that this is something that sort of warrants the full weight of the federal government. And that says something to people.
0: So how does this shooting in El Paso fit into a larger pattern?
2: I think El Paso, what it speaks to a little bit is what we've seen time after time after time is we've seen a shooter or a shooting suspect who is facing criminal charges, who is a a young man who is uh, said to be somewhat socially isolated, said to be somewhat sort of isolated in his personal life, and who... In either his remarks or a manifesto, if it is in fact confirmed to be his, has expressed some desire for some grander purpose, some infamy. Uh, People who have studied mass shooters say that part of the goal for some of these mass shooters is infamy, is fame, is the notoriety that comes, which is why there's an effort from advocates to not name them, not identify them, not give them the publicity they want. But in this case, you have somebody who, if the manifesto is in fact his, the alleged shooter proclaims these sort of like broad ambitions and broad goals it's it's laid out there this is not just somebody who got mad at somebody down the street and brought a gun this is somebody who if the manifesto is his and if he is tried and convicted uh, it seems to be from the manifesto that he had this sort of the notoriety in mind people have gotten used to this i mean active shooter training is now routine Uh, schools practice it offices practice it, businesses practice it, people have just sort of accepted that this is a part of life in America, that just periodically the worst thing imaginable will happen to a huge number of people. And that community, those families will never be the same. This is one of the things we learned after Las Vegas, um, where there was hundreds of people injured and 58 people killed in that shooting. The level of trauma that people bring with them throughout the rest of their lives is is almost unimaginable because We actually don't know at this moment in time how many people are affected by what happened in El Paso and Dayton. Because you have the people who were killed. You have the people who were injured. You have the people who heard gunfire and ran away or saw bodies or saw a shooter or something that'll stick with them forever. You have family and friends who waited to see if their loved one was okay. You have people who responded to the scene and saw what they saw inside. The real scale of these is, honestly, I cover these a lot. It's really hard to wrap your arms around.
0: Mark Berman is a national reporter for The Washington Post. So the El Paso shooting in particular puts President Trump in a pretty challenging position because... As soon as it became clear what the shooter had been talking about before the shooting, a lot of people pointed out immediately that President Trump's rhetoric is exactly the kind of rhetoric that the shooter is citing.
5: That's exactly right. The parallels are so eerie.
1: At this very moment, large, well-organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern border. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion.
5: The shooter in his manifesto online talks about an invasion, a Hispanic invasion of Texas.
0: Philip Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post.
1: Yes, sir, we have barbed wire going up because you know what? We're not letting these people invade our country.
5: Well, President Trump is the one who's been talking about an invasion again and again and again uh, in his tweets, at his speeches.
1: Last week, I called up the United States military. We're not playing games, folks. There's no Because you look at what's marching up, that's an invasion. That's not, that's an invasion.
5: The shooter also talked about fake news and and borrowed other terms that Trump has used and went out of his way, because their ideologies are so aligned, went out of his way in concluding that four-page manifesto by stating that his views predated Trump's campaign and that Trump would not be to blame. But you wouldn't even have to make that declaration if they were not ideologically in sync. So it presented a huge problem for President Trump. And we've had so many of these mass shootings during the Trump presidency. And the questions that reporters covering the White House have asked is, how is he responding? How is he playing this role that's very difficult for him of being the consoler-in-chief and helping a nation grieve? But this time is different. This time we're asking— Did he contribute through his words, through his rhetoric, to the carnage that played out in El Paso?
1: This weekend, more than 80 people were killed or wounded in two evil attacks.
0: So then we saw President Trump this morning making a big speech at the White House about this. What did he say?
5: Well, he said all the things you would expect a president to say. He condemned the hatred, the bigotry. He even called out white supremacy by name, which is something he's been reluctant to do in the past.
1: The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry and white supremacy. You know, he called on people
5: to to appeal to better angels, to come together, to overcome these divisions with unity and love.
1: These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. The
5: problem is that the words ring so hollow coming from his mouth because... He himself has contributed to the partisanship and the bigotry and the hatred and the divisions. And absent from his speech today at the White House was any recognition of his own role in doing so or any statement from him that he's going to change his ways.
0: And in this speech, he also laid out some potential policy plans of what he sees as the solution to this problem. What were the things that he was talking about? He did. He t- you know, his policy plans that he laid
5: out are very much in sync with the Republican line. He talked about reforming video games. There are too many violent video games out there.
1: We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace.
5: You know, he talked about mental health.
1: We must reform our mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence.
5: He called on the Department of Justice to do more to try to regulate these areas.
1: We must shine light on the dark recesses of the Internet and stop mass murders before they start. The Internet, likewise, is used for human trafficking, illegal drug distribution, And so many other heinous crimes.
5: But he notably did not call for gun control.
1: Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun.
5: He noted that he had backed the limits on bump stocks back after the Las Vegas shooting earlier in his presidency. But he did not call for background checks, which is something that he actually mentioned on Twitter this morning before the speech and is something that's universally, almost universally popular and has been put off by the Republican leadership in the Senate. Uh, Trump did not go there. So I don't think we're going to see any sort of meaningful gun control legislation.
0: Well, because we've also seen that in the past, like right after the Parkland shootings that President Trump briefly talked about trying to introduce stricter background checks and then almost immediately backpedaling on that.
5: That's right. Right after that Parkland shooting, he had Trump had uh, a number of Democratic senators uh, at the White House for a meeting. And it it was remarkable because it aired entirely on live television. And Trump said seven, eight, nine times that he supported background checks, but then, uh, you know, clearly got a talking to by either the NRA or the Republican leaders on the Hill or his own aides and reversed that position and, and opposed the background checks bill, which has been held up by Mitch McConnell.
0: I think a lot of people were also really struck about how he talked about mental illness during this speech saying that mental illness pulls the trigger not the gun and it was just notable that he steered so directly away from any kind of meaningful conversation about access to guns.
5: That's exactly right. And he's focused on mental illness. But what the background checks bill would do, and all the advocates will say this, is that it prevents people with mental illnesses from obtaining those sorts of weapons of mass murder. And so, you know, if he's focused on mental illness, he can pass that component of the background checks bill, certainly. But, you know, look, there is so much political pressure on Trump from the NRA, from the gun community. He knows how influential those millions of dollars in advertising were in the 2016 campaign. And I think he's afraid of crossing the gun industry and the gun
0: lobby heading into his 2020 re-election. But what he's talking about as actual meaningful things that he plans to introduce or plans to change – will they actually be effective? Because when you're talking about video games and social media and stuff like that, I mean, those are things that exist all over the world. Most countries in the world do not have this problem with mass shootings. And that it seems unclear whether what he's actually talking about is really a meaningful plan for helping prevent mass shootings.
5: Yeah, so I'm not a mass shootings expert, but part of my job is to interview a lot of people who are experts in mass shootings, and they will almost— universally tell you uh, that the steps that Trump laid out are not the solution to the problem, that the problem in the United States is because there is so much access to guns, uh, high-capacity magazines, assault rifles, and so forth. I mean, video games, you look at South Korea, for example, a country with a huge, uh, video games are hugely popular there. Tons of people play these sort of violent games, and they don't have this sort of gun epidemic that we have here in the United States. The one difference in the United States from these other countries as our access to these sorts of semi-automatic assault rifles.
0: It was also interesting that President Trump talked about the death penalty.
1: I'm also directing the Department of Justice to propose legislation ensuring that those who commit hate crimes and mass murders
0: face the death penalty. And that part of his plan is to instruct the Department of Justice to seek the death penalty for mass shooters.
1: And that this capital punishment be delivered quickly, decisively, and
0: without years of needless delay. But he didn't really spell out many of the details. It was very vague and also sort of questionable whether even something like that would be effective or necessary.
5: That's right. There was very little detail in what the president laid out in that policy. And it's interesting because we heard over the weekend from the authorities on the ground in El Paso that they are indeed treating this as an act of domestic terrorism and a hate crime and are going to be pursuing the death penalty. So it's unclear uh, what Trump wants to be done differently, what kind of legislation would change the outcome, or, or what exactly the Department of Justice should be doing that they're not already doing.
0: How have we seen other politicians Responding to the shooting and responding to President Trump's reaction to the shooting.
5: It's interesting. You know, the Republican response has been somewhat muted. We've not really seen any Republicans break with President Trump or call on him to do anything more than he's already done. But we've seen a very dramatic uptick, I would say, in the repudiation of Trump from the Democrats, especially from the Democratic presidential candidates, and especially Beto O'Rourke, who's the former congressman from El Paso. And for the last 48, 72 hours, he's been in his hometown in El Paso calling Trump a racist, saying he is culpable for this attack, saying that his sorts of rhetoric and demonization of immigrants, of dehumanizing immigrants has to stop, and he's been pretty impassioned about that.
0: Is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh,
2: what do you think? Um, you know the he's been saying. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what
3: the fuck
2: Hold on a second. You know, uh, I, I, it's, it's, these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism, he's promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence, he's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is.
0: It feels like we've gotten to a moment where people are more willing to call out these shootings and these shooters as rooted in white supremacy in many situations. You had the El Paso Sheriff's Office who talked about the fact that these people were targeted because of the color of their skin and in light of the increasing recognition of white supremacist rhetoric as part of these shootings, how is that playing out for the president?
5: On Trump's watch, as president for the last two and a half years, white supremacy has risen in this country. It obviously is a movement that predates President Trump, but it has become galvanized and activated in, in, in a big way. And that's according to the FBI. Trump's own FBI director testified to this a couple of weeks ago before the Congress. And yet the president uh, has not really done anything in office to confront the challenge. He's not even really directly acknowledged it. And in fact, after that New Zealand shooting, which was uh, set off by a white supremacist, Trump poo-pooed the idea that white supremacy was on the rise and said this is to reporters that this is only a problem for a few select crazed individuals. And so the challenge for him is will he acknowledge the crisis that his own government is struggling to contain and combat? Today in the the White House, he did utter the words white supremacy and so therefore acknowledged it, but there's no resources and force behind it. And I think what Americans are going to be looking for is some sort of forceful uh, repudiation from the president and a plan for how to root it out and how to eradicate this once and for all.
0: Phil Rucker is the post White House bureau chief. Now, one more thing. The hottest month in recorded history.
3: Let me begin with the climate emergency.
4: So this is the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres.
3: We have always lived through hot summers, but this is not the summer of our youth. This is not your grandfather's summer. According to the very latest data from the World Meteorological Organization and its climate center, The months of July at least equaled, if not surpassed, the hottest months in recorded history.
4: I'm Andrew Friedman, and I'm the deputy weather editor for The Post. I cover weather and climate here. July 2019 basically offered a preview of what's to come. We had an incredibly hot heat wave in Europe that was made up to five degrees warmer than it otherwise would have been by climate change.
3: This year alone, we have seen temperature records shatter from New Delhi to Anchorage, from Paris to Santiago, from Adelaide to the Arctic Circle.
4: Towards Greenland, where Greenland had a record melt event over the past several days, we saw heat waves in the United States and massive wildfires burning in the Arctic. So Siberia and Alaska in particular. For everyday people, this really means that we have to be more accustomed to dealing with these extreme heat events. Depending on where you are, we need to be more accustomed to dealing with big wildfires and smoke hazards. And we need to be uh, mindful that uh, for Greenland especially, the fate of the ice sheet isn't fully decided yet it will be decided based on the decisions that are made in the next 10 to 15 years or so. So when I talk to scientists about this, they constantly remind me that uh, the ice is melting, it's melting faster, it's melting more significantly, it's raising sea levels, but its ultimate fate is not yet determined. It matters uh, what choices we make over greenhouse gas emissions in, in the next several years,
3: Preventing irreversible climate disruption is the race of our lives and for our lives. It is a race we can and must win.
4: For climate scientists looking at this, one particular calendar month isn't necessarily super significant. What they're looking at is Many months added together and many years added together. So the last 30 years, the last 50 years, the last 100 years, the period since the Industrial Revolution versus the period before. Some scientists are going back thousands of years in their research. And everything points to greater and greater warming and greater and greater impacts. So one month is really kind of just symbolic of where we are at now and the climate that we're slipping into, the new period that we're slipping into, which is just this era of consequences that are here now and increasingly visible.
0: Andrew Friedman is the deputy weather editor for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Go to postreports.com to read more about the stories featured in today's episode and to catch up on recent shows. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.